Hello, everybody, and welcome back to a, another episode of the Careers Mayor podcast with me, Jordan Andrews, and my beautiful, gorgeous, handsome friend, Jacob Power. Um, Jacob, how are you? I feel like it's 2024, Jordan. Well, you wouldn't be far off there, mate, because it is. I'm a bit worried because that's such a big number that it feels like something could go wrong at any second. We've never tried doing a podcast in 2024 because uh, we made a stylistic decision at the start of doing this podcast that they were all going to be in 2023. And I really felt like that was going to go on forever. But the runway ran out, unfortunately. Yeah, that's... uh... That's sort of how time works, mate. <laughs> That's what you get for making the format too rigid. So this yeah. is a whole new deal today, guys. We're doing, it's basically a whole new podcast. We've ripped out some of the foundations and we're trying to put in new ones. So bear with us. And... <laughs> you swat. <laughs> 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 and <laughs> and what better way to try out this brand new format than with one of our brand new friends, someone that we'd never spoken to before the recording of this podcast. Um, his name is Anil Dewar, and for many, many years, he was a journalist, and we think you're going to find it very interesting having a little peek behind the curtain of that industry. Don't you think, Jacob? Stop the presses because there's a new episode of the Careers Mayor podcast. You can use cut out that bit and use it as the trailer. <laughs> yeah, it's not really what I asked, is it? But that's <laughs> that's fine, isn't it? <laughs> Sorry, what did, what was the question? I said that that that'll be interesting, won't it, Jacob? <laughs> I think it will. Right, just start it then. We normally start off by asking, when you were very young, what was the first time that you ever thought about what you might do when you were older, and what was it? When I was young, I wanted to be a barrister, and I don't Mm. know why, and I don't know when that came about. I can remember being about eight or nine, maybe a little bit older, and telling my uncle, my cousin that wanted to be a barrister. And they were quite, I can remember them being mocking because they said, well, you have to be able to make yourself understood, (laughs) you know, make your point. Maybe when I was a kid, I was a bit of a rambler. And I remember being slightly uh, hurt by it. But yeah, that was my first thing, being a barrister. Maybe it was TV dramas, you know. When I was a kid, Mm. there was things like... um, Rumpole. Sort of Rumpole, but there's also something called Crown Court. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Do you, and I don't know if you come across it. It's literally yeah, an undramatised version of a court case. So, and, and I don't know. It, it always seemed quite exotic. but And I still, th- you know, I still think that sort of the brain have that kind of legal argument is quite enviable. And is that something that you pursued at all? Or was it more no. of like a ch- childhood dream? Mm-hmm. 
It was had. a childhood dream. I think um, as the conversation progresses, you'll see that I, for a long time, sort of meandered my way through life and jobs. And so, yeah, making an effort. By the time I realised that to achieve something and to to get to where I wanted to effort, I think Barrister was, you know, wasn't there because it had been too much, you know, sort of the, the training and the cost and whatever. I didn't even consider it at that point. And probably, mm. um, oh no, I don't, I don't have a criminal record. I was going to say I was probably be barred, but no, I don't have a criminal record for the record. <laughs> That's a slightly odd thing to bring up out of the blue, like, oh, and I don't have a criminal record. That's a bit suspicious. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, just in case you're wondering. <laughs> so, um, why just, do you think you would be barred then? Um, well, I wouldn't be. I wouldn't be barred, but I think maybe my difficulty with those sort of very establishment jobs is I'm not a very establishment person, and I think with those kind of jobs, with those those areas, you have to act in a certain way. There's a language, and you'll probably the further on through your careers you go, and the kind of areas you you know sort of people you meet you. The very establishment figures have a language, you know. Whereas I might say that I'm, yeah, I'm fucking furious. Uh, you know, their language is, I'm, I'm displeased at this suboptimal situation. Mm. Whereas, and I can't do that. I, I, I can't do that. And you have to be able to play a game. Or That's it. Yeah, and, play the and, game to be part of that. Yeah. Otherwise, you end up rocking the boat. Yeah. yeah. And that's not what they want. You know, the establishment is established and that mm. is it, isn't it? You know, we don't, they don't want it changed. Not that mm. I'd want to change it, but it's, I'm just not that kind of figure. So, what was your first job? What was your first actual job? And how old were you? I started paper rounds. I think a classic, isn't it? It kid, is, yeah. kid in the 70s. I had a couple of shops where I did paper rounds when I was about 11 or 12, something like that. Now quite young then. Yeah, I, I always, well, 12, I, always, I had a bike. I like cycling and I, I love sweets. So I had to have <laughs> for sweets. So you've married the two there, right? Like well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and for the shop owners, I suppose it was, and I sort of figured this out quite late on in my life. It's, they're paying you two quid, but if you buy two quid a sweet worth of sweets, they've probably only paid you eighty p or whatever it is the the value of the sweets to them. Yeah. <laughs> so um, actually, thinking about it, I also was in a church choir, and I got paid to do weddings and all the sort not the church services, but all the ever the other services, weddings or funerals when they had a choir, we got paid for that. Again, pure sweet money. <laughs> Yeah, that sounds like a lovely thing to do, though. Well, it was it was quite it was quite sweet. Looking back, it was quite sweet. You know, we'd have our little little books while the sermons going on. We're all reading like Enid Blyton or the comics. You know, whatever you're doing, you're just sitting in a pew reading, and you know, you sort of walk through the church with a cross and candles, and yeah, it was it was nice actually. I've forgotten about that. So, have you uh, have you still got a good voice? No. singing voice no <laughs> no not at all last night i was my mother-in-law was in a choir and we went to this sort of carol service and there was a couple of sing-alongs and oh, i'm embarrassed but like, <laughs> i'm really embarrassed about my singing yeah. i definitely wouldn't be paid i could be paid not to sing but i wouldn't be paid to sing, was this carol concert in a church 
because it was a church was. is the ultimate safe space for bad singers because <laughs> it doesn't matter when you're singing a hymn what your voice is like everyone just joins in and yeah yeah that's true and i don't think people and definitely you aren't being judged but it is hearing your own voice is not not particularly nice mm. Well, get used to it with this podcast. Well, yeah, I was just thinking <laughs> yeah. as that sentence came out. <laughs> yeah, I've got used to it now. You know, this is episode 10 from editing all the episodes so far. I find I've got over it, the sound of my voice. Did it take you long? Uh, not really. I do sound, I sound, how do I think I sound compared to how I sound in my head? I think my voice sounds deeper to me than it really is. That's mm. one thing. I'd say the right. same for me, actually, yeah. Yeah. I'd say mine sounds deeper, you're right, but also a bit more thick. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess it's the same. Yeah. And that must just be something to do with the acoustics uh, within your own head, I yeah. guess, or with it, within one's own head. Yeah. Has it made you change the way you speak, either of you? Don't Not think consciously. so. Maybe, yeah, maybe. I don't know. I haven't thought about I, it. Yeah, I don't think so. I mean, I, I wouldn't be the judge of that. I think someone, I don't know, someone else would have to tell me if I sounded different. Mm. Well, you do, because when we stop recording, you've got an American accent, Jacob. <laughs> you, just, you just put this on, didn't you, for the pod? <laughs> yeah, you sound like I put like an aristocrat, and I sound like <laughs> Dick Van Dyke from Mary Poppins. <laughs> we swap for so yeah, we just swap, yeah. <laughs> We finish recording, I go, oh, good heavens, thank God I can stop doing that ghastly voice. <laughs> so what would you say your accent is, Anil? Is it just North London? Yes. And just I'd North London. My, my, my accent's very North London. And actually, it's my mother despaired at me because she um, was very well-spoken. And I think I used to be well-spoken until I went to secondary school which was this roughhouse secondary comp in Hendon. And I stood out like a sore thumb and, you know, just had to blend in. And I think that was that was a, the start of this accent that I have now. My wife mocks me for it. Yeah. <laughs> do, you, do you think if you'd kept your previous accent, that, then you might have become a barrister? <laughs> you know, what? it might be. I think if I went to a different school, my whole life would have been different. Because that school was, I think, was particularly poor for what I needed. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm just, I'm not very traditional in the way I am, but I think I have certain talents and my thinking's not particularly normal <laughs> or usual. And they just, you know, there, that school's all about damage limitation. You know, chairs being thrown through windows and teachers and pupils fighting, like <laughs> fighting in a class, but, you know. Because a kid had brought his stuff to school in a plastic bag and the teacher didn't like it, ended up with a brawl between these two. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, that was that was it. Whereas I'm not I'm not a brawler, definitely not a brawler. So You've just reminded me of a story I saw online once. I don't even know if it was real, but it was a apparently a kid tried to annoy his teachers by bringing his books to school in a microwave and carrying <laughs> the microwave around with him. <laughs> 
that's commitment to a joke, isn't it? Yeah. That is proper commitment. I saw, a, I saw a similar one to that where um, a uni lecturer had banned people using laptops in his lecture hall. Um, so someone came in with a typewriter and started really loudly typing at the back of the lecture hall and then doing the shing every time they finished talking. No, I like that. That's good. <laughs> Well, my first job after the paper rounds, I'd sort of got various Saturday jobs. And my first one was with with a butcher's. I was a delivery boy on a bike, on one of those old old metal frame bikes with the um, rod brakes. You've probably seen the Hovis advert, you know. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was literally like that with a metal basket (laughs) welded on the front. But when I left school, I, I just went there full time. But my dad was furious, A, that I had no qualifications. He, him being Indian, education is everything. And so he came home one day and he'd walk past a shop on, you know, near West Finchley Tube Station. And there was a little parade of local shops and there was a little electronic shop and they wanted a trainee. And he said, right, son, you're going to be a trainee electronics engineer. He goes, yep, yeah, you're starting on Monday. And so I started off this electronic shop in West Finchley. Um, but it became clear what the guy wanted. He'd, he'd got this massive batch of old car radios. You probably, you know, way before your time. We Basically, he had this massive batch of car radios and he wanted to break them down into component parts, you know, resistors and transistors and other bits and pieces that he could then use and sell or whatever. It wasn't, he didn't really want a trainee. So I spent like six weeks sort of desoldering stuff. And then he said, Brilliant, thanks very much. And this was really poorly paid. It was like probably like 25 quid a week or something. But I've got a friend in North Finchley who wants someone permanently, a guy called Edmund Levy. So okay, I wasn't, wasn't really engaged. I just did it. I just moved on to this other place. And it was on the Youth Opportunity Scheme, which is sort of apprenticeship that the government, yeah, under Thatcher. And so I was doing one day a week at college and four days a week in this little shop, again, in a little local parade of shops selling his his electronics and um sort of doing minor repairs but i'm a very poor student i'm a very poor student so i didn't go to college much and that and so he he ended up fine with it because all he didn't really need a trainee so i was just sort of he was teaching me bits and pieces in the shop and going out doing his business and i'd run the shop for him selling like really crappy old TVs and then repairing. Yeah, back then when electronics were relatively basic, it was simple repairs, simple repairs. You know, you'd sort of put your meter on and wear, work out where the circuit was broken, repair the circuit or repair the part, you know, pretty basic stuff. Did you enjoy it? Um, I didn't mind it. I think I, I didn't see it as a It wasn't like, yeah, I'm an electronics engineer, and I, this is what I'm, it was. It was never that. It was always as you, as it will become clear. I was sort of waiting to find what I wanted to do or be, and then it got a bit. It got too boring, and I just sort of 
like, no, I can't, I can't be doing this, can't be doing this. And my cousin from Canada, who's an electrician, he ran his own business and he'd buy plots of land, have houses built on it, wire up the houses. It was in Halifax, Nova Scotia. He came passing through and my dad, again, being my dad, said, no, after he was going, my dad said, right, me and Mike, we've got you a ticket. You're going to Canada to work with, to work with him. You're going you're gonna to work with him as an electrician. Sounds like and you never really had a lot of choice in the, in the matter with this no, stuff. No, <laughs> it, was, it was a funny one. My dad was quite strong. And I, I think not knowing what I wanted to do in that sort of area of my life, in the sort of profession, I was just like, well, whatever. You know, I don't. And actually, the idea of going to Canada was an adventure as well for me. Mm. It was an adventure. So, yeah, I, I just sort of took off again. Didn't have a visa or anything. <laughs> I don't know what, you know, it was like, didn't have a Canadian driving license. It was just. <laughs> Okay. It was just it was all a bit. How did you manage to get over there then? On a tourist visa, fine, but oh, I, well, right, I probably right. didn't need a visa as Brit. I probably no, I don't think you need a visa to get in there, but to work or you know. And so I was in yeah this little town on in Nova Scotia, but it was it was over the winter. I don't know if either of you have been to Canada over the winter. No, but I can no. imagine Nova Scotia is quite north, isn't it? Yeah. It's, and it's coastal. Yeah, yeah. I wake up the first time I wake up and there's ice on the inside of the window. And I'm thinking, I'm thinking I'm, I'm British, you know, it's snowing. I can't, you know, we can't go to work in the snow. <laughs> but there, of course, it's nice. It's like, get up, get out. You know, looking back, it was a great experience to be there and my cousin was a great guy you know he was he was um good fun and his mates were good fun but working on building sites or just running cables that is what we were doing was sort of running the cables through the empty in the empty houses so they'll go to light switches and you do all the cabling before the walls go on so it was, and there was no heating you know you have like all these little hand warmer things it was minus, you know, minus 16 minus 17 and you couldn't wear gloves because you're doing dealing with cables and it was pretty rough and i was getting mm. a bit homesick i sort of was there for about eight months over winter and then thought no i can't i can't be doing this so i came back to england sounds character building yeah well that's yeah i mean you start to do stuff you go that is that's tough, you know. It's yeah. tough. I can do stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. And is that? Um, were you thinking to yourself, you know, I need to get myself a trade, or sort of still just sort of drifting a bit at that point, thinking, oh, I don't really know. I was still sort of drifting. I wasn't a particularly hard worker. I wasn't driven. You know, like my cousin who I was working with. You know, he's he came from india to canada as a kid he was educated in canada sort of secondary level he worked as a trainee bought his boss's company off his boss he was buying plots of land and becoming a property developer you know and, and now you know the guy's hugely successful in financial terms he was driven and i could see that's not it's not me you know i'm yeah i'm an employee i'm not an employer and so I was still drifting because nothing grabbed me. 
that hadn't grabbed me. And uh, so, you know, later on in life, I found a job, a profession that grabbed me. And I knew this is what I want to do. But that wasn't it. So I came back to England. I was saying I'm not natural for this. And a bloke in the pub who I knew said, oh, this, this company I work for, they're looking for a maintenance man. I think you'd be brilliant. Because they knew I'd been to Canada. A maintenance man, you know, around the offices. It was sort of subcontracted. So you had this company, like Pimlico Plumbers, all these tradesmen that, you know, you'd bring them up and they'd go off and do their work. And one company wanted to contract a full-time maintenance guy for all their offices, and they used me. <laughs> and, and how did that go? <laughs> it was a disaster. It was a disaster. <laughs> I was meant to be putting up mirrors in bathrooms, and I was cracking them, and <laughs> I was like, just, oh, man. it was, and, and I knew it was a disaster, and I just, I'm, and they gave me, and that was it. I had a little van. They gave me a little van with their logo on it, Data General. Data General was one of the first, like, computer companies, big computer companies. And uh, I crashed the van, <laughs> driving like an idiot, you know, like, really crashed it. it sounds like an episode um, of Mr Bean. Well, like... it was, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It could Mr. well Bean be Mr Bean becomes a maintenance man. Well, no, but the, the, um, the company that contracted me out, the sort of the guys who paid my wages... Not Data General, the other guys who paid my wages. They were fine because they got paid for me. And then if it was something really serious, they'd send in one of their prof- you know, one of the professionals, one of the guys who could really do the job to do it for me. <laughs> so were Data General paying like the, the bronze tier rate or something for like the for they didn't send the really good technicians out? Is it were they yeah. different tiers? Like you, you... Yeah, this is I think it was more like aluminium, yeah. it was right we we just got a bloke on site who could bring us up for you that's what you get for this money so what happened with the van we kind of skimmed past that where you said you crashed the van what happened there so their office was out in Slough and it's actually do you ever watch the English office yeah their office is part of the opening credit sequence really skims past it was in Slough oh really yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I was going round and round about, and there was another car. It's dual carriageway. Another car very close to me. I ended up going onto a central reservation, not like not hitting a, a metal barrier, but just. And then I had to come up, and the wheels spun out, and I've driven. I've gone flying across two carriageways. I've gone through a flower stand. The guys were just setting up the flower stand, so they weren't behind it. And I've gone, I've gone straight through the middle of it, flowers everywhere, these two guys legging it either side. <laughs> and I've gone down this little bank and hit a tree, come to a stop. You know, I'm shaking. These guys were brilliant, you know, so, so sort of decent. You're right, you're right, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I felt really bad because I just destroyed their day's work. You know, they couldn't sell those flowers. That's what they're there for. Anyways, a policeman on a motorbike came past and he's pulled over and he's seen me and he's gone, uh, he goes, how fast were you going? I said, probably about 30 mile an hour. And he goes, "Mm." (laughs) I hope you can convince your insurance company because you're not convincing me. (laughs) And he, he, he just drove off. You know, yeah. So I got I got a, a rover 
a really posh rover as a replacement while that van was being uh, fixed, which was the, oh, the upside of the Landed story. on your feet then, didn't you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so what came after the maintenance job? After I, smashing all the windows I and took it, I took it right back down to bed. I, I became a van courier. I thought, clearly, I'm better at driving than I am at maintenance. <laughs> hmm, not sure about that. <laughs> well, you didn't see flower, my maintenance work. Those, those flower guys were quaking in their boots when they heard about that. Yeah. So, yeah, so I am um, just driving parcels around London. It was back in the day, couriers, like especially bike, motorbike couriers, before emails and whatever. And so... Letters were just being, and parcel paperwork was being sent around the city all the time, just sort of important documents, parcel, spare parts. Mm. And so I did that for, yeah, probably a year, just sort of driving around. But the traffic, you just start to get all stressed out driving. But that was a simple job, you know, sort of really back down to basics. I can drive. I was still crashed, but... <laughs> You know, you not as badly, not as, you know, you just sort of run into the back of someone <laughs> straight beside it, you know, that classic. How insane. soon into it was that? Um, not, not that soon, not that soon. Okay. Yeah, it's like a roundabout. I don't know. Do either of you two drive? Yeah, I do. Yeah. You do. Classic roundabout crash is where you're behind a car and you're watching all the traffic mm-hmm. coming around and you can yeah. see a gap coming. And you assume they're going to go for the gap. And you start off, you turn around, and they're still there. Bang. Yeah. Just hit the back yeah. of them. So it was not It was never like on the flower stand scale again. <laughs> but yeah, I noticed uh, you were avoiding answering how long after you started it was. <laughs> I can't You know, these little things. It, would, it wouldn't have been that soon. I genuinely wouldn't have been that Three soon. Three months? Yeah, something like that. (laughs) But you imagine, but you've got to think, you've got to think, you know, sort of the more miles you do, the more likely it's happened. So if you'd said to me how many miles in, I could have said, oh, it'd probably been about 10,000 miles before I had the first crash. Okay. That doesn't sound too bad, yeah, Yeah. (laughs) when you put it like that. (laughs) Did uh, the crash affect your prospects in that particular job at all? Or did you just uh, dust yourself off and keep going? Yeah, yeah, just yourself off, keep going. You know, they just, you know, their insurance is all. And this is back in the day when the insurance wasn't quite as, well, it was nowhere near as expensive as it is now. Mm. So it was all part, you know, it was all part of the business, they expect it. So what made you uh, stop that job when you did? I just found, I just found sort of, it was just all getting too stressful when you're under pressure because you get time pressures. You know, people are waiting for important documents or did a lot of work for music studios, you know, Korean tapes about, you know, they've got a studio and they want an engine, they've got an engineer in the studio waiting for something. And you just, and you're stuck in traffic and you're just getting, you're just getting pressured and pressured. And that's when the crashes happen because you're getting pressured to get move around quickly. And it's just like, no, this isn't worth it. This isn't worth it. So, mm. and that was that was the end of that one. So there's a bit of a theme developing here where you get a job through <laughs> a random, a chance conversation with <laughs> yes. someone. Uh, yes. You do the job for a bit and then you decide that it's not for you and you move on to the next one. 
Yes, pretty much. So that's it. I suppose it's just like going through a chocolate box, isn't it? Something. Oh, it's, it's quite <laughs> nice. You try it and you go, oh, no, not really. Put half back. And then, yeah, try another one instead. So um, my next one, again, not a chance conversation. A friend's dad worked for an auction house in North London. Not a fancy auction house. You know, it's quite a small one. And they needed an auctioneer's assistant, which is basically humping and dumping all the furniture around. Again, going right back down. I, you know, I've had enough of the driving. That was a bit too taxing. So now it's just muscle. All I'm doing is lifting furniture, carrying it around. It's general antiques. Um, wow, we're really back in Mr. Bean territory now, aren't we? Like, he gets a job moving antiques around. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Luckily, I can't say, I can't say <laughs> that I am, um, I can't say I had a disaster there, actually. Okay. No, I, um, no, I didn't. I don't think I did any Mister Beanish kind of. <laughs> That's good. It's very hard. It would be very hard. I mean, things break, but I don't think it was as a direct consequence of. There was two of us, me and a guy called John, brilliant, brilliant guy. Who John was from the West Midlands, and he was pretty much uneducated. He sort of had quite a, a rough upbringing. And, um, but he was the shrewdest guy I've ever met, the smartest bloke, really, really streetwise. He knew how to turn a buck, basically. Mm. And that's what these auction houses were all about. It was all about buying and selling. And but there's and it was a great, it was a great job. Great, I loved it. It was, you know, it's some lovely items. You know, I quite like antiques. You know, it's your antiques roadshow. You know, watch it and you look at these items. Go, oh, it's lovely. And you get to sort of look at these items and play with these items all the time. And you've got some right characters in there. And basically, it was four day a week job. The auction was on Sunday, and I think it was it was basically Monday to Thursday, and then Friday and Saturday the bosses would just sort out the fine detail of it all. And it was it was great. How would you end up leaving the auction house? Um, they sell you off. <laughs> no, they couldn't, they couldn't sell me. It's like <laughs> let me out the back. Um, I just no. I thought my life was in a bit of a rut because, like as I said, it's a it's a real sort of wheeling dealing scenario. It's all buy and sell, and I'm not a salesman. So I thought, as much as I love it, this isn't my future. So what am I going to do? And I decided to take some time out and I went to Israel. It was what a lot of people did back then was go and work on the kibbutz. You, all you needed was your flight money out there. They gave you food, they gave you shelter, you know, accommodation and a little bit of money. And it's in the sunshine, good hard work. And I have to say that's the real making of me was going to Israel, actually. So what did you do out there? Well, I started off on a kibbutz in the north near the Sea of Galilee and it was just agricultural labour. I, I worked in banana plantations, picked dates, just avocados. I was working on cherry pickers and we had to like put in poles and cables across the top where they'd tie trees to to get them growing straight, mm. you know. It was, and it was it was really good fun. It was great fun, you know. Everyone's there just to sort of get away from things for a bit. A lot of booze, a lot of nice young people. I met a I met my long-term girlfriend there, not my now wife, but I met my um, long-term girlfriend there, and that was 
and we decided to go off traveling. She was going to Africa traveling after this, and I thought, oh, I'd love to do that. So I left the kibbutz and I went to Tel Aviv and just sort of worked there, just purely earning money. I lived in a hostel, dormitory, you know, it's like six, eight people in a room, like labourer, pot washer, painting and decorating. You know, every morning you'd wake up and you'd go and stand outside a bit. It's a bit like seedy, a bit like a street hooker. You go and stand outside and these like these builders and their trucks would pull up and just point at people and you get in the back. And they drive you off to, and you do whatever day job they needed doing. But um, and that taught me like the value of, of actually because everything was so insecure. Taught me to work really hard because I wanted to impress these people. I wanted mm. I didn't want to have to be like reliant on. I wanted to have some kind of security, and I want people to come back and say, "Yeah, we'll we'll take you again." And so that was that was what I did for a good like six seven months. But all good things have to come to an end. So we came back. I decided then that I wanted to go to uni. I wanted to go travelling again, basically. So I, I went. I picked a Spanish language degree course because they send you away to South America for a year. So got on a, an access course because I had no qualifications from school. Got into the University of North London very easily got in a Spanish language degree course with with history two years doing it around Holloway and then got sent to Chile in South America for a year studied there didn't work and then came back for my final year all the time that I was going through university I had to work because it wasn't wasn't a full grant so you know I did I worked in the university library shelving books I worked at Camden Market on a stall doing map research, uh, just like people who were developers, people involved in property wanted to see the history of a site. I'd go to map libraries and down and sort of just photocopy all the historical maps of that one site so they could see what's been happening to it over the last 200 mm. years or whatever. That was quite fun. And then um, university ended and I still didn't know what to do. Still hadn't really got a clear. I couldn't be a Spanish historian. It's always the way. Always the way. <laughs> you know? yeah. I don't know. It's like, yeah. So I I saw an advert for the BBC doing a traineeship, a journalism traineeship. So I applied for it, but didn't get it. But I thought, you know what? I really, really love to do that. So why, why the hell not? You know, I'd love to do it. So I went to the... I was I was on I was unemployed, and because I was unemployed, the the government would pay for me to go on a course. They, they paid for this course. The National Council for the Training of Journalists was like a sixteen week sixteen week or something fast track course to get into journalism down at Lambeth College in Vauxhall, and so I went there and just started learning. You know, I learned law shorthand um how to write journalism and just sort of general general knowledge about the way councils work governments works and at the same time i started doing work experience on local papers and that started me off mm-hmm. so what was it that what had you like experienced or up until the point when you thought you would like to try journalism that had made you think that you'd be interested in that i'm quite a good letter writer and I love, and 
I bet you two haven't written a, a long letter in your life, like a sort of. When I was younger, yeah. When I was you a child, did. yeah. Mm. To Santa, yeah, to Santa, but yeah. Not... <laughs> <laughs> when I was travelling, I just I loved it. I had to share everything I was seeing, you know. And we didn't just go to Africa, you know. We were in Turkey. We we're in sort of Eastern Europe, you know. So all the things we did, Cyprus. And I'd see these mad things. And I just used to write letters to my family, to my friends. And it was, you know, a dispatch. A dispatch from, you know, Congo or wherever. And and people said, oh, we really love getting your letters. And it sort of, that was part of it, was I like telling stories. And that's what journalism is. It's just telling other people's stories. It's, it's relating what you see. And, and I thought that was part of it, yeah. The fact that, that I, I just sort of came to me quite naturally to mm. to tell these stories. It must have been quite nice to find something that you already enjoyed as a hobby and then think to yourself, oh, actually, I could do this and get paid for it. Yeah, I don't think I wasn't. I suppose I, I've never been motivated by money, to be honest. But yeah, I think that was it. And th- in my head, there was that sort of that dream of being a foreign correspondent, which I haven't been. I've worked abroad, but I've never been a foreign correspondent, but it's sort of quite a romantic view of what journalism was or is or could be. I had that, and that, yeah, I loved it. You know, I can remember reading foreign dispatches. When, my, when I was a kid, my parents would get the Guardian, and I remember reading stuff. Specifically, I remember there was this one piece by a guy called Ian Black, who was a Middle East editor, and he was writing from the you know, Gaza Strip or Lebanon or somewhere like that, and it was just... Whoa! I want to. I want to do that. I want to be there. And I can remember that that really grabbing me. And and then it, I suppose I remembered that when I applied for the BBC job, I remembered that sort of desire. And that's what yeah set me off. And and you're right. Sort of suddenly finding this is what I do, and what I could you know get paid for is mm. turn it into a job. But the money was appalling. Yeah, I bet beginning. it was. It yeah. genuine at the at the beginning when you're a trainee. It is appalling money. Yes. And I was older than most, you know, sort of 10 years older than most of the other trainees. So I I had a life, you know, I had a life building. I wasn't living in a in a sort of my first, home, you know, flat out of home, which are generally worse. You know, I built up a little bit of a lifestyle. And so it was tough. It was tough very much living mm. on the overdraft. How old How were you at that point? I was probably 31 at that point, 32. Hmm. And what kind of stories were you covering at that early stage in the local papers? I think I can remember the the first one that really sticks in my mind was when I was doing work experience, um, that was at the Hackney Gazette in East London, and there was a funeral for one of the Cray brothers. Not the Cray twins, but oh, the Charlie. third one that no one talks about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Charlie, the sophomore. Yeah. Um, and so I can remember covering that, but obviously it was a right old gangster funeral, all the East, and I remember being there covering that. And it's like, oh, this is brilliant. And then what was that like? It was fascinating getting close to all these, a lot of the characters that you knew about. Um, Bad Frankie Fraser, there was uh, Dave Courtney, who died fairly recently he was yeah uh, and some other figures 
there was also after that, I mean, it's great being there and seeing all, but then you've got to turn it into words. You've got to put it in the paper. And I remember the, I, I didn't write it because I wasn't skilled enough to write it. I was just relaying facts and the pressure for everything to be correct, you know, get the wrong name. They'll show you a photo and go, who's that? And I remember someone else who's doing work placement saying, oh, they got the name wrong. And I said, sorry, that's mad Frankie Fraser, you know. And there is there is a negative view of journalism. And, and what, the, what people don't realise is that we do strive to get everything right. And, and the pressure to get it right, or I feel it, and I think every journalist should feel it. I don't think everyone does, but I can remember that funeral just sort of making sure you've got the names right, even the locations, all the minor details anyone can pull me up on. And I, li- I just liked being, you know, this is an official source. That's what it felt like. We're now an official source yeah. of a, a record, official record of an event. Yeah, so if someone like wrote a book about that person, probably yes. that article would be one of the sources they'd use. Mm. Yes, exactly. You know, and you want you, you know, I hate being wrong, basically, as well. I just hate being wrong. My wife, my kids will tell you. More. <laughs> <laughs> so, what was the progression from that local level? So I did those weeklies like the Hackney Gazette and the New Shopper in Petswood and then the Daily Evening Paper, Nottingham. And then I moved back to London because we were going to have my first son. Moved back to London and went on to the Evening Standard in London. And I don't think I would have moved back to London if if we weren't going to have a kid. I, I really loved it in Nottingham. I loved what I was doing. But moved back to London. I had to just find work you know, and started applying. What what it was, the way it probably still works a lot now, is shift work where, you know, the papers have what they call casuals and they just employ them on a day basis, day rate, and you do a shift. And generally when you're starting off, you're doing a shift like five in the afternoon until two in the morning because that's when papers stop printing. And you do a lot of that, especially with the evening standard because it does a lot of its work early morning. You'd be there, you'd do overnight work. And then I got shifts on the Daily Mail and that turned it full-time, just full-time working there, started off working those sort of night shifts then going into day shifts, just doing general news reporting, you know, someone's died. You know, you get the, you get the difficult work, you get the ugly jobs. Someone's died, go and knock on their mum's door and find out how they feel about it or, you know, criminals in court, you know, you want to go and track them down and stuff like that and there's a lot of time to sort of driving around the country knocking on doors and yeah going to going to the register offices getting birth certificates death certificates and just starting to track people down through this sort of mix of information it was was really exciting really exciting stuff you know Mm. now gdpr is a big thing so the, the access to information is limited more limited but also there's so much work can be just done at your desk where you're going through Facebook and tracking people. And that's still interesting, but I did like the thrill of the chase and just sort of going out and trying to find people. But since that was a national newspaper, I guess it was higher profile court cases and higher profile deaths yes. and things like that. Yeah, I mean, it was like those sort of millionaire neighbours 
in a court case row over the size of a fence or trying to get Nigella Lawson, her, her brother, had said something in about her childhood in a national paper. And I was, you know, someone tells me where she lives. I go round to the house and knock on the door. And back when she was with Charles Sarchi and Charles Sarchi opens the door, he's fuming. He's fuming at me. How dare you knock on my door? How dare, you know, and he's just like, shouting in my face and it's like you know, I've got a right to knock on the door you've got a right not to answer it but, um, there, was, there was one there was when mobile phones were first coming out um, a, a young lad had had stabbed someone and nicked their phone and he was in court and so his address comes out in court and they sent me to knock on his house and it was this um, housing estate in Battersea and I went to the door, got close to the door, and there was just this, this music, like the, the deepest bass you've ever heard, just rumbling. And it was some quite dark. It was just dark. And I thought, no, <laughs> I'm not, not going to knock on that door. You know, there's a couple of times where it's just like, no, nothing good will come from me knocking on that door mm. in my suit and tie. And but what did... Um... Like, what was the reaction? Because your bosses must have been quite hungry for the lead, so they must have grilled you sometimes. They were brutal. So the guys I worked for, now one is the editor of The Times, one's the editor of The Telegraph, another's the editor of The Sunday Telegraph. Sorry, Sunday Times. The Daily Mail back then was still, you know, in my opinion, it's the best product. I'm not talking about the politics of it, but the actual product is a really great product. And that was done because they were so insistent on the best quality work. And, you know, if you didn't do the best quality work, it was public bawling out, you know, one guy had a knife thrown at him, I saw. You know, when what? Went, I, I know it wasn't like a big knife. It was, I say a big knife. It's still a sharp one. It, <laughs> you know, one of those box cutting knives for like you oh, cut yeah. out oh, like a Stanley. Yeah, not yeah. as not as thick as that, but quite a yeah, thin yeah. one. And you use it for cutting out bits of the paper. You know, you wanted stories. You just cut yeah, out yeah. Story. And and this guy had upset the news editor and just thrown the knife at him. <laughs> yeah, but you just accept it. I mean, back then you just it was just part of it, and it was sort of. I'm not saying it's right, but what happened with with that kind of work atmosphere, what happens is you find people who really want to be in a job stay. Mm. If you're prepared to put up with it, and I was prepared not for that long. I moved to a different paper with a different atmosphere, but you want to be at the talent at the mail, which is the best paper, and you want to survive there. You, you know, that's what it takes. Now it's different, but... And I didn't think anything of it. I just thought, well, how much do I want this job? And for a while, I wanted it that badly that, you know, you take the abuse and the insults. And I never had a knife thrown at me. But, <laughs> you obviously you know, weren't trying hard enough. So it really is like the, the way they portray it in movies slamming papers down on your desk and it's like i need i need this scoop now <laughs> I, can, I remember so i can remember one in one time there was case studies you know we're doing a story about taxation really i mean it's really dry and so what you always want to bring that alive is a case study what does this mean for a couple 
who have two kids, a dog, go to private school and smoke, drive a car. Mm. It's all about the taxis. They say, right, we want a case study. And I'm trying to find, you know, and you've got to find someone who matches this profile perfectly. It's really hard. You don't just have a list of them. And I was trying to think of people, trying to work out, you know, how go to, yeah, trying to find ways, you know, you go to a PR person, do you know anyone? Do you know any? Remember the news editor coming over and standing over me and saying, right, you've got a case study, haven't you? I said, well, I'm trying to get one. He goes, right, so you've got a case study, haven't you? Well, I'm trying to get. I'm trying to get one. He goes right. So you got a case study, haven't you? <laughs> and I'm just thinking, what is going? What is going on here? Going on? You know, it's and and you get that. It just these sort of. It, it was sort of insane demands, and and you probably heard of Paul Dacre. He's a sort of legendary editor. He was the editor at the time, and you know he was as abusive to the people around him when it came to deadline and he's trying to finish off the paper, you know, it's, it's a tough atmosphere. It's, you know, people are under pressure and they want it to be perfect and you get all kinds of shenanigans. Yeah, at the Daily Express, the owner, Richard Desmond, punched someone to the floor because he decided not to do a story about a, a, a really unknown drummer who died. But this, the owner really liked this drummer. And they had an argument, and the owner just ended up punching him, and he's fallen to the, and he, he got a six figure payout for it, you know. But that's the kind, you know, it's all kinds of, you know, all kinds of things went on, mm. and it just wouldn't happen now. It wouldn't happen now because you know the world has moved on, and I don't, and I don't think papers are as um, as influential as they were. So that the the pressure inside. No. The pressure inside mm. is less because, you know, they can't, they, you know, when the Daily Mail could determine what a prime minister said or did, those days have gone. Prime ministers I mean, have got their own, they've got their own Twitter account. They don't need to even talk to the newspaper. That's it. Yeah. I mean, for me personally, I would say I probably use the, the papers. I mean, I don't read a physical paper, but I read the stories they put online purely for football, really to hear about stories in football and then the rest of my general news I'll just get from social media. Do you have trusted sources or does it just sort of drip into your life? Well, it's it's just whatever comes up on the feed. I mean, I do, can you trust anything on social media? That's the that's the problem, isn't it? Well, I suppose I suppose if the BBC's blue tick feed or Oh yeah, yeah. When we're talking yeah, when we're talking about like verified accounts and stuff, yeah, you know, yeah, verified, I, that's yeah, yeah. Um then yeah, that's mostly talking about QAnon. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I well, have my sources, Jacob. Don't you worry. <laughs> but yeah, so I mean I the the some great time and also, you know, you go out pack jobs, what we call a pack job where every newspaper has sent someone to the same story. So either you're comp- it could be that you're all competing against each other or you know that there's not much, so you all work together. You don't tell your desk. The desk will know. The, the, the news desk, your management will know. But you all work together and say, look, mm. is, we've got this bit of information. You've got that bit of information. Let's share it. We'll both agree that this is the story. Because what you don't want is the editor picking up the, the next morning's paper and seeing a different story from yours, because they, they might just for the hell of it say, that was a better story. Why didn't we have that story? So you both agree on the story, and that way you're both safe. 
That's a bit of a shame, really, isn't it? Because the good thing about having a broad spectrum of papers is that if you read the same story in The Guardian and The Telegraph and The Daily Mail and The Times, then you've seen versions with slightly different emphases on them depending on the political leaning of the paper and you've probably got closer to the truth than if you just read The Guardian all the time or you just read The Daily Mail all the time. It's, it's, it's really funny, isn't it? Because sometimes, you know, I, I, I do read or I did read a, a vast array of papers every day. You read every paper. so you, And I, I know where I, I feel I am politically and I don't relate that to my job um, because I'm just a paid hack, basically. I'm just a paid mm. journalist and I'll write for The Express, I'll write for The Guardian, I'll write for The Times, I'll write for The Mail, you know, and it's all... I just write for them. And I'm not a political reporter anyway, but there's sometimes, you know, I'm going through my Twitter feed and you get a video of someone talking about some political event going on current affairs. And and it says, listen to so-and-so say why this is wrong. And I think it's right. So I won't want to listen to why it's wrong. And mm. I find I catch myself doing that. I'm thinking, really, you should listen to that. But mm, I'm just thinking, yeah. I haven't got time. I haven't got time for it. <laughs> you know, it, I've got I've got videos of like furry cats to watch and whatever. <laughs> That's know. better. That is better. It's, it's more soothing. Yeah. <laughs> it's far more soothing. Well, I guess people don't want to, you know, it's quite a scary thing to consider changing your mind, especially about something remotely controversial because you're scared that you're going to alienate your friends or people close to you or you're going to become you know it's going to affect your popularity or your social standing so quite often if you're faced with the prospect of you know reading or listening to something that you don't already agree with you're going you know part of the reason why you won't want to is because you don't want to change your mind about that particular subject or undermine your whole you know your whole view of the world. Yeah, yeah. it's human. You know? It's human nature, though, isn't it? It is. It's, it's, it, that's it, why the algorithm yeah. can do it. Yeah, it's it's a tough one, but you know, and and I think maybe more more, and and I think this is you know I don't want to get really political, but I think like with with Brexit, I think people weren't the the people at the top, and I was working for the Express when Brexit came around. So, you know, you know, where we where we saw it. But I don't think people at the top were really aware of of how people who didn't think like them really thought. And mm. it's that kind of thing, isn't it? It's an echo chamber. You've just got all these people saying, look, if you're intelligent, if you're smart, you think like us. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And we, we've got to we tell get them, it. be smart. Yeah. Be smart. We- <laughs> You know, don't be a thicko. Don't be a thicko racist. Yeah, yeah. You know, and 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 that's that's just an example where people, you know, just need to be aware of other opinions. Mm. But it's, like you say, it's hard to take it in without the fear of undermining your whole sort of notion of reality or whatever. Yeah, I think at the very least, you've got to try to understand how someone could hold the other opinion, even if you don't agree with it. Yeah. You've got to be able to try to empathise a bit. Even if you d- actively dislike the other opinion, you've got to be able to... I, th- I think, you know, so as, as a journalist, what what I thought, especially in, in Nottingham, like, so, you know, 
basically middle class North London. I've never really suffered. You know, I can't say that. And I went off to Nottingham and I'd go to these these villages. It sounds quaint, but they're just like a, a group of houses in the middle of nowhere that once fed a working mine or a steel mill. And those mines are closed down, those steel mills are closed down. And they've got nothing. It's just drugs, deprivation. They don't see the value in education because they've had generations of not worrying about education because they just went to the mills or the mines or they married a miner or, you know. And you go to these places and you see. And I saw for the first time how people outside of posh London worked and or lived. And it was an eye-opener. So the Daily Mail was the first national newspaper you worked for and then how long were you there and then what did you do after that i was at the daily mail about three years and then i moved to the daily telegraph i was there probably another three years neither of these jobs was i a staff i didn't have a staff contract i was i was just on a sort of casual contract but full time Mm. at the daily telegraph i was working on the news desk sort of middle management of a paper and then I decided to go freelance. Sadly, that's when the crash of 2008 happened. Oh, right. And so I quickly got back to shifting, and then I was shifting at The Guardian at The Times. Those two, basically, between them, was full-time work. And then the Daily Express offered me a staff contract, which, although it's not the ideal paper for me, was a lot of security. So I went to the Daily Express and stayed there. And I was um, general reporter. I was home affairs correspondent. So home affairs, I was dealing with people like Theresa May when she was Home Secretary, Priti Patel, a lot of the a lot of the politicians around that, Sadiq Khan, Dominic Raab, you know, in that in that field, dealing with them, dealing with the police. And then I went on to the news desk. And I stayed there until last year. Last August, I took voluntary redundancy. I'd been at the Express for 16 years. Oh, wow. Wow. I've survived. I've never been, you know, I've never threatened with redundancy. But every time it just got a little bit harder and a little bit sadder. And it's not, as I remembered it, it wasn't fun anymore. It's just more process. So I decided to take voluntary redundancy and... At the same time, I got myself a job with the example AQA, which I've been doing for since January this year, January 2023. Some of my GCSEs were done, were set by AQA. I'm glad to most hear it. Most of mine were. Yeah, most of mine. It was either that or uh, Edexcel. Yeah. Edexcel, Pearson, yeah. Edexcel. Yeah. Yeah. Or, yeah. Or OCR, a few of them are OCR for me. But AQA is definitely the, the biggest one. Um, so what, yes. what do you do there? So there, I run a website there. It's a blog site called aqi.org.uk, which is basically set up to share the research that they do within AQA. They've got a really quite big team of academics who look at the science of assessment, qualifications, curriculum, and they do a lot of research. They're doing a lot into AI at the moment. 
digital exams, how, how students react with an on-screen exam compared to doing it with paper. Can they type better than they can write with pen and paper? Does that change? What they're finding is what they call the mode effect, that students write longer answers with a typewriter, with a keyboard, than they, than they write by hand. But is that answer any better? Not necessarily. You know, so they really, they oh, I didn't realise how much science goes into the way they set exams. And talking to one, they're just talking about how much white space they leave around a diagram on a maths paper. They said, we, we've made mm. the working outlines lighter because we, we did all this research and it in, increases the, the cognitive load on students. So we, they make all these fine adjustments. So, so I work with them to write up blogs about their work trying to share the best practice of um, how people set exams and how they design papers and marking, even mark schemes, stuff like that, which is very niche. I have to say it's very niche and, you know, it's it's not a huge... I'm trying to build the audience. That's part of why I was brought in. But, yeah, I find, I find it fascinating just talking to these academics. Mm. I was just going to ask what drew you to that in the first place. I needed to move on from newspapers. It's a very local job. And I think just specialisation again. I was, I was sort of in middle management. I was, and it's writing. It's talking to people. You know, I'm home. I love talking to people about their stories. I like academics. I like talking to people. I like big ideas and the sort of when you talk to these these people and you sort of say their knowledge is about you know about a very small, a very narrow subject, and you just get sort of get you go into these sort of little wormholes of like I was saying about you know, just making a, a working outline lighter to improve an exam experience you know it's just and so now I bore my wife and kids with it my daughter doesn't want to know I'm trying to say to her look you've got GCSEs coming up she does not want to know one bit <laughs> so Anil we are now moving on to the dream job section and what we like to ask people before we get into it is do you currently have a dream job or or rather a job that you wish you'd done oh yes I do I do very much okay so. good start go on I wish I had been an international test cricketer. Okay. Okay. I love it when it's completely out of left field. Yeah, yeah. I'm nowhere near. I do. I've started playing cricket about three or four years ago. I, I just took, I just decided I wanted to play cricket. I've always loved cricket. And, but, and so I'm, I'm not, I'm definitely. I play league cricket on a Saturday and I'm definitely one of the least useful players, but I love it. <laughs> I love it so much. My, yeah, but it's all day and I just get loads of grief from the family. <laughs> like, your weekends, you know, from Thursday through to Sunday, you're busy at the cricket club doing blah, blah, blah. Like, yeah, well, I can't, I can't defend it. Yeah, I am. And I love it. What do you love about it? I love so it's so it's not like football. I do like football, but there's time to think in cricket. So I like target shooting or stuff like that. And so when you're batting, it's almost like that. We've or bowling even. You know, you've got a very specific target. It's not free flowing and just random things happening. You know, mm. it's like oh, my job now. My aim is to hit the ball there or to bowl it there or to catch it. You know, and so I like that very. Sp- you've got these very specific 
tasks each time. And it's laid back. You know, when, when your side's batting on a lovely summer's day, and you're sitting in the pavilion, and, you know, they, they built lunch into a sport. You know, <laughs> you know, you've got to have time for lunch. That's how civilised it is. Um, and, you know, and you sit there and there's this lovely massive field of green in front of you and, and you can watch what's going on. And it's time to think, you know, that's when you're playing and when you're watching. And if you take that to a level where you're travelling to Australia or South Africa or India or... Right, yeah, yeah so it's got the travel type see, into it as well. That's it. That's it, in these really exotic places. So next year, I'm going to India for the first time in my life to watch the cricket in a place called Dharmashala, which is on the Tibetan border where the Dalai Lama lives in exile. And it's in the foothills of the Himalayas and it's meant to be one of the most beautiful cricket grounds in the world. And I've never been to cricket abroad and this will be my first experience. And I'm just thinking, I'm I'm really excited. It looks beautiful. Mm. It looks beautiful. I'm thinking, if you were paid to play cricket there as well, and they throw in lunch, yeah. and they throw in lunch. <laughs> yeah, you'd hope so, travelling all the way to, <laughs> to near the Tibetan border. So what's like professional cricket like? Is it like football when you've got one foot in the grave already when, you're, when you reach 30? Or do you have older people, older people than that doing professional cricket still? You, with cricket, you can play to it yeah. till you're older um partly because it's not as um and it's not as um energetic as football or you know not as impactful on your body really. yeah but now with with sort of modern science you know the bowlers know how to look after themselves you've got someone like jimmy anderson who's still bowling and he's, he's pushing 40 and he's still bowling fast yeah, because I was you just know. thinking, if it's you know, if we're talking about your dream job, dream career, maybe we could, because you came to journalism quite late, we could slot this in just before you know you you went into journalism. You could have had a, <laughs> a stint as a as a professional cricketer. So you know, like early twenties to early thirties, done that, oh, and those ten years of traveling, and then you went straight into the journalism. So you don't have to uh, yeah. lose that, but it's still. If if only if only I, I had this, I just don't think I could ever pass myself off as a professional sportsman. <laughs> this, is this, dream. this is your dream. This is my dream. So, yeah. yeah. Oh, sorry, in my dream world. Yeah, I reckon that would be that would be about right. Yeah, sort of twenty to thirty, because you know it's not going to last forever. Although, if I'd done that and then actually got into coaching. And like hung around, mm. hung around yeah. with them as they went around the world, you know, sliding doors and all that. Mm. Or sports journalism, because you could be a cricket journalist, couldn't you? Well, after? you know, I, I mean, there is that. I, I would like, I wouldn't mind doing that, traveling around, following them. But the reason I started playing cricket was because I was so frustrated just watching. And, right. and, and not being able to, and saying, oh, he did a great shot. When in reality, you <laughs> want to say, I did a great shot. Yeah. yeah. You know, and, and that's, I think that's genuinely what drove me. I got tired of talking about other people, people playing good <laughs> cricket and just saying, no, it's got to be me. I like an adventure. So I know in football, you can, when you're playing internationally, you can represent countries based on like your dual nationality or if you've got parents or nans from different countries that you kind of twat thing. So you who, twat you <laughs> so who would you who would you represent well who would you play for that's uh, when i go to india next year 
who am I going to support? Yeah. I, I think <laughs> it would be India. I'd love to play for it. I mean, like, they're yeah. a much harder team to get into. When I, when I was oh. growing up, they weren't a particularly good side. Now they're the powerhouse of cricket. Are they? Yeah. Who is the best? Because I don't follow cricket at all. Who who's like the best country? All round India. They, yeah. oh, India. Australia just beat them in a World Cup final, one day game. But that was everyone was a bit surprised by that. Mm. Australia and India between them dominate cricket. England should have, but they've dropped off. Mm. But yeah, I, no, I'd, I'd I'll play for India. Let's be honest. Okay. <laughs> oh, okay. God. But yeah, not people... necessarily because of any feeling of attachment, but just because they're the best team. No, no, for, totally for attachment. Oh, okay, right. Totally yeah. for attachment. It just so happens that they're the best. Team. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, um, and and maybe and this is funny. I've been thinking about it because I support when England are playing India. I support India. My daughter got mad at me. I celebrated India catching. There was some catch, great catch by an Indian of an English, and my daughter's like got mad at me. Why? Why are you celebrating that? England are just out. <laughs> She's very, you know, she's very much an English supporter. Yeah. And I wonder if it's because I like supporting the underdog or being alternative. Mm. And maybe mm. in India, I might just start supporting England just because I'll be a bit <laughs> massive. You know? Let's see. Let's see what happens. I yeah, don't you show know. up with your uh, red cross painted on your face. <laughs> That's it, my Union, Union Jack shorts. Yeah. Yeah. Is that all you would want to do? Is there any other um, aspects that you would want to bring in? Or is, would you purely be content with doing the test cricket in? I think I'd be content with that because what I think what it does is it's the you've got the travel aspect of it. Now, I think it'd be very hard to run a family and so this is a dream job and this would be before I settled down and had children. But yeah, I, I don't think I could wish for much more, you know, just being able to travel the world, do something mm. you love and be paid for it. Well, yeah. I think that that's, that's it then. I think we found it. So yeah. will yeah. you shake our hands on that, uh, Congratulations. On that job? Yeah. You're now an international <laughs> test cricketer. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, selectors, You're Jordan now a, and Jacob. Yeah. Now, now get, a, get a, stretching and get out there. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Well, thanks so much, Anil, for coming on the podcast. It's been very, very interesting. Yeah, and, it really uh, has. Uh, I'm, I've really enjoyed this. It's just a really good sort of trip down memory lane and just good bit of self-analysis at the same time. Yeah, yeah. Me wrong. absolutely. Right, it's been well, an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much, Jordan. Thank mm. you so much, Jacob. I've really enjoyed this. Hey, hey, Jacob. Yeah, that that um that podcast. Yeah, that we just did. Oh. Yeah. Howza! Because of, of the cricket. Howza! Because in the cricket they say that, didn't they? Do do they? Yeah, in the cricket they go. Someone hits the ball and they go. How how was that? How was that? Are you being... What did you What did you think of that? <laughs> What's going on? In Are you being cricket, serious? They're in the look in the cricket, Jacob. And they they say how's that when someone does a good hit, don't they? I don't know. They definitely think... no. They definitely do. I've never watched cricket. I don't think. Oh, 
thousand. <laughs> what does that mean? How is that? Are they asking? How was, was how that? Was, I think it's like how how was that? Like that was oh that was good, wasn't it? Okay. So one of them says how was that, and the other one says it was good. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I'm so the more I say it, the more I think it's not real. But it definitely no. Don't make me doubt myself. It definitely is. But. Yeah, just a bit behind the scenes. Uh, just before we started this outro, Jordan said to me, I, can I start because I've got a really good joke? So clearly he thought that that was going to be universal. Maybe maybe it is. Maybe I am the only person who doesn't understand it. Look, Anil will get it. When he listens back to it, he'll hear that and he'll think, <laughs> yeah, like the cricket. Well, I hope he does because he deserves it after a thoroughly entertaining podcast. He does. He does. And I'll tell you what else he deserves. Um, he deserves a like and a rating on that podcast episode on any podcast platform that you're listening on, Spotify, Amazon, or Apple. Please do that for Anil. He needs it. But, but Jordan, but I mean, you can't actually like individual episodes, can you? So I suppose that you have to like the whole podcast or else you yeah. hate Anil. I guess... Yeah, actually, when you put it that way, it does sound a bit like you're being really horrible to him if you don't just give the whole podcast five stars. Yeah. Um, and maybe maybe when you leave a review, um, you could put five stars and you could put, Alza! And um, and then it'll be like a little little in joke. Maybe that could be like a new um, like a new bit, Jacob, in the podcast, like a new little in joke. Like we could, you know, we could just say, Alza! Like, yeah, okay. Should we try it? Should we try it for ooh, the next 44 episodes? Yeah. I think at some point in the episode, we'll just have to say, Alza. Yeah. And if Won't we forget, we? I'll just put it in really quietly in the background in the edit <laughs> with loads yeah. of reverb on it. So it sounds like a ghost. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, I like that. Listen oh. out for that. Listen out for that, boys and girls. And listen out for the, uh, for the next episode. Um, which is going to be coming out on Monday, the 22nd of January. It is. It's going to be the 22nd episode and it's going to be the 11th. No, it's going to be the 22nd day of the month and it's going to be the 11th episode. 11 times 2 is 22. Yeah. And... How's that? <laughs> Hang on. <laughs> I'm working something here. 11 times 2 is 22. 22. And if you give the podcast five stars for this episode, which is episode 10, 10 divided by 2 is... No, 10 divided by 5 is 2. 2. So they go into each other, 2 ice. 2 ice. 2 ice. They go into each other, 2 ice. ice. (laughs) And 11 goes into 22 twice. And if that's not enough to convince you to comment, then I... Or to like and subscribe then i don't know what it is and one final little thought is if you are going to comment what was it Howza! Howza! Yeah. if you are going to comment Howser on um on the podcast please do but it's only funny if you give it five stars so i don't want to see any one star Howser reviews it is i just looked it up it is i think yeah yeah um, um yeah so come back for episode 11 on the 22nd please uh love you bye mm. bye